The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Season 3 of Students of Mind the podcast that's all about opening up and normalizing discussions about mental health in ways that anyone can comprehend. In the first two seasons, we sat down with mental health experts and survivors to give you a full circle picture of each topic. In this new season, we will continue to explore the world of mental health through the insights of experts, healers, and individuals with lived experience. From alternative healing modalities to living with multiple illnesses, this season we will cover a wide range of topics with the help of a diverse selection of guests. My name is Jade, and in today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Jason Nagata and William Hornby to talk about eating disorders in boys and men. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Hey friends, it's your host Jade here. Um, I just wanted to pop in and give a quick disclaimer about this episode. Um, In the second portion, there is some audio background noise um, that I wasn't able to get rid of. I tried. (laughs) I, um, you know, utilized my audio enhancement and actually had someone else try to do audio enhancement on the file, but it would make 
some of the voices really basically inaudible. Uh, so I had to just leave it so you could hear what we're saying. Um, so I hope it's not too distracting. Um, but it like, you know, I listen to it back and it's not terrible, but it's noticeable. So I just wanted to pop in here and say sorry about that. Um, but I hope you can still enjoy this episode uh, because it's it's a really special one. So yeah, that's it. Let's get back to the show. Today's first guest is Dr. Jason Nagata. Dr. Nagata is an assistant professor of pediatrics in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the co-founder of the International Association for Adolescent Health Young Professionals Network. He is an expert in eating disorders, particularly in boys and men. His other research interests include adolescent and young adult physical activity, eating behaviors, food security, nutrition, cardiovascular disease, screen time, HIV, and LGBTQ health. He has published over 200 articles in academic journals, and he serves as senior editor for the Journal of Eating Disorders. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. I'm really excited about our conversation today. But before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yes, of course. So I am a pediatrician who focuses on adolescent eating disorders. And my particular area of research and clinical specialty is on eating disorders in teenage boys and young men. Great. And that is our discussion topic for today. And I'm really excited to get into it. I feel like this is something that is not nearly talked about enough. Um, So I guess before we get into the main topic, I guess I want to start with asking you what led to you working with eating disorders? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that I've always been interested in nutrition and how it impacts our health. And so as a medical student, I was actually advised to try to check out the adolescent medicine clinic and particularly the eating disorders program because there's so much um, integration between nutrition and health in the setting of eating disorders. And so actually as a first year medical student, when I was just starting my medical training, I was lucky enough to be able to shadow in our adolescent eating disorder clinic. Um, And I actually was able to follow a few teenage patients over the course of a year. And I will say that the one patient who really stuck out in my mind was a teenage boy. He was a 16-year-old wrestler. And when I first met him, you know, there are certain questions that you're trained to ask in terms of assessment for eating disorders um, that are mostly about weight loss questions. Like if if a patient is, you know, trying to, or vomiting or using laxatives or skipping meals or fasting in order to lose weight. And I remember asking him all those questions and he denied all of them. Um, But when I talked with his parents, they basically said he's obsessed with his appearance. He checks himself in the mirror like 24 seven. He is on the wrestling team. So he practices, you know, three hours of varsity wrestling practice a day. And then Immediately after that, he'll just go straight to the gym 
and work out for another three hours on his own. And he's just obsessed with working out and his appearance. And I just remember thinking that, you know, all the things that were taught in the textbooks about eating disorders, a lot of those aspects didn't really apply to him, but he was clearly very, he was very much struggling with body image. It really affected his school and um, social life. Um, and he was really suffering. And he actually ended up having to be hospitalized and um, had a sort of long recovery course. And in, over the course of a year, like helping to take care of him, it just really um, illustrated for me the many gaps that we have in our research, in our um, clinical guidance for boys and men with eating disorders. And that really inspired me to want to um, champion this topic in my future research. Um, and so that really actually, that one patient really um, brought me into this field. That's really cool. That's inter- that's nice that you are able to like have that uh, like in the field experience to teach you this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the, um, the privileges of being like a physician and a researcher is that oftentimes our patients and their struggles uh, and the challenges that they face can really um, direct us to for like types of research and um, advocacy that we do to help people who are really struggling. And I think that <laughs> eating disorders in boys and men are um, is definitely one of those topics where I think a lot of guys are missed and have lots of struggles that go unnoticed. And so, yeah, I think that that particular patient and then many since them have really inspired me to want to work in this field. Yeah. So let's get into it. Can we talk about like how is the experience of eating disorders different for men and boys? And like, how common are eating disorders among men and boys? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I think that most of the research up until now on eating disorders has primarily focused on female samples. Um, And we know that the idealized feminine body image is um, thin and lean, and that can lead to Uh, people engaging in behaviors for weight loss, like I mentioned, fasting, skipping meals, um, vomiting, or taking diet pills or laxatives to try to lose weight. (laughs) But we actually know that for many boys, the idealized masculine body image is actually bulky and muscular. And so actually, a lot of boys and men are not trying to lose weight at all. They're actually trying to bulk up and gain muscle. Um, And that can lead to a whole different set of behaviors like um, using performance-enhancing drugs like steroids um, or other muscle-building supplements um, or exercising excessively or having some dietary changes that may not just be skipping meals and fasting but actually could include high protein consumption coupled with cutting out carbs and fats. And so I think that some of the gender norms and pressures for the idealized masculine versus feminine body ideal can really drive different behaviors and different goals uh, in boys and men versus girls and women. Um, And that can sort of lead to a different set of um, of, of behaviors and, and goals. Of course, that's sort of the overall stereotype gender norm. So there are certainly 
some girls and women who are trying to get muscular. And there are certainly some boys and men who are trying to lose weight. Um, but these are just some of the societal pressures, I think, that really set the context for body image issues <clears throat> in boys and men overall. Um, and I also think that in the backdrop is um, media pressures, whether, um, you know, if you think about Hollywood stars or movie stars, and you think to like superheroes who are portrayed, um, you know, Marvel superheroes these days are much more muscular and bulky than they were decades ago. If you think about like the original actors for Batman, like Adam West, like in the 50s and 60s versus how, you know, the current Batman, um, uh, you know, Christian Bale or what are like a really bulky and, and portrayed in a really muscular way. Um, and there have actually been studies that also have looked at um, boys' action figures over time and have found that even the toys that our boys play with have become more muscular over time. And so I do think that um, there are concurrent media pressures, whether it's from movies or television. And then I do think that one of the big exposures in the past 10 years that is new um, is you know, the advent of social media. Um, and I do think that a lot of content on social media, especially for boys and men, has promoted this muscularity um, you know, ideal. And so there are a lot of influencers, male influencers, who are showing their latest bulking and cutting regimens or cheat meals or some of these current trends that really do promote muscularity and getting bigger. And the limited research that we have on social media in boys um, does show that in general, boys who spend more time in social media are more likely to be dissatisfied with their bodies and specifically their muscles. They're more likely to engage in disordered eating behaviors, and they're more likely to engage in muscle building behaviors, including taking anabolic steroids. Um, so I do think that there are um, these sort of societal trends that have been um, taking shape over the last several decades that have led to this context for more pressure for muscularity in boys and men. Um, and I, I think that to answer your question about how common eating disorders are among boys and men, I actually think that it's a really hard question to answer because, um, first of all, many of the um, studies that we have looked at the prevalence or how common eating disorders are have primarily focused on women. And so many studies actually only look at this phenomenon in, in girls and women. Uh, and in addition to that, even if we use some of the standard assessment tools that, um, you know, either for like the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, or even some of the weight loss behaviors that are typically asked in screening in primary care or in some of these national surveys, a lot of those are really geared towards the weight loss ideal and the thinness ideal and actually miss um, some of these issues in boys and men. So I would say even if we're asking about certain questions that <coughs> correlate with the female-centric body ideal, um, we're still, even if those questions are being asked, we're still missing the guys who are really suffering from um, body image issues that are related to their muscularity. Um, so I think it's a difficult question to answer. But one recent study um, that was of high school students in Australia actually looked at the prevalence of muscle dysmorphia. Um, and so that's uh, uh, 
condition that's characterized by uh, preoccupation with um, insufficient muscularity. So some people more colloquially know it as bigorexia or reverse anorexia. Um, and that study actually found that overall 2.2% of adolescents um, were affected by muscle dysmorphia, which is pretty common if you think about that in, like as in sort of the general population of teens in Australia. Um, so that's one of the first studies I think that have really looked at this sort of muscularity oriented phenomenon in boys. Um, but I would say that in general, the studies that we do have probably are underestimates of eating disorders among uh, men and boys, just because of some of those issues where we're really focusing on weight loss. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it makes me wonder about like treatment, because I like even for me, and um, I have been through eating disorder treatment, and like, going through inpatient partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient programs. And knowing that for women, that's like, the standard, I guess, in, in terms of eating disorder treatment. But like, even when I was in these programs, I saw one, maybe two boys on the unit while I was there. And talking to them realized that they had to do a lot of work like in groups to pick out things that were mentioned that they could relate to because a lot of what was being talked about they couldn't relate to. So I guess my question is like what types of treatment is available for men and boys with eating disorders and like how is recovery different for them? Yeah, I think what you mentioned is spot on in terms of the experience that many of my patients have shared with me, which is that because eating disorders are a somewhat feminized um, illness, and many programs uh, have a majority of their participants who are females, um, I do think that in addition to the overall stigma that people with eating disorders experience, I think boys and men have almost like a double stigma because there are getting treatment for this quote-unquote feminine illness, and oftentimes they're the only boy or the only man in a certain program. And actually, some programs that we've looked into don't even accept boys and men for that reason. Um, and so I do think it can be a very, even more isolating <coughs> experience for many of them. And as you mentioned, especially in group sessions where people are sharing their own experiences, it can be difficult or more challenging for some boys to relate to um, you know, other people, if their lived experience of, especially if they're aiming for some of these muscularity goals, and that's not what other people are sharing, it can be very isolating. Um, I think overall, the current standard of care is, um, you know, still for men with eating disorders to receive interdisciplinary care. So that includes a medical provider who can check, you know, their labs and vital signs, um, and ensure that their physical health is stable, um, a mental health provider um, who can provide therapy, and if they're a teen, potentially family-based treatment, um, and then a registered dietitian or a nutrition expert who can also advise on um, dietary issues. Uh, but <clears throat> I do think that <clears throat> a similar thread that we will see is, you know, most research has really been primarily in female samples, um, and 
there are, um, you know, some studies that include boys and men, but usually it's a vast majority female samples. And there are very few studies that have really looked specifically at treatment for boys and men. So I do think that the jury is still out as to, um, you know, I think it currently is the standard of care. And I certainly have seen many boys and men who get better with the traditional therapy model and, you know, engaging if they're a teen in like family-based therapy or if they're an independent adult, you know, engaging in like cognitive behavioral therapy, plus the medical support and the nutrition support. But I will say that, um, you know, sometimes the traditional um, rules that apply, especially to more fitness-oriented and restrictive eating disorders, may not apply to the situation for boys and men. So I do think it's important for providers to um, adapt and uh, understand that many boys and men with eating disorders may not um, relate to some of the classic eating disorder symptoms and behaviors. Are some of these like uh, disorders relating to like muscularity, are any of these listed in the DSM? Um, that's a really great question. And I will say that um, the and I will also say the caveat that in that interdisciplinary team, I, as a pediatrician, am more on the medical side. So I certainly have some understanding of the DSM, but I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. But my general understanding is, well, first of all, in earlier versions of the DSM, so like before the DSM-5, actually one of the criteria for anorexia nervosa was um, amenorrhea or a loss of periods. And so that obviously is not a criteria that applies to boys and men. In the most recent 2013 update of the DSM, so the fifth edition, they got rid of the amenorrhea criterion. But it's just to say that even some of the DSM criteria have traditionally been very female-centric. Um, in this most recent update, the DSM-5, um, the I will say that some of the newer diagnoses that were created were a little bit more inclusive for boys and men. So for instance, um, atypical anorexia nervosa, um, where someone you know meets all the sort of psychological criteria for anorexia nervosa, but their weight may be considered you know in a normal or uh, you know not an underweight kind of range. Um, I do think that there is a larger proportion of men who fit into that category. Um, there also has been some research that avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Um, which is one of the eating disorders that doesn't have a body image component at all, um, also um, has a higher percentage of boys and men who meet that criteria. Um, and then I think where the diagnostic um, sort of challenges are is that um, another diagnosis that was added to the DSM-5 was this muscle dysmorphia diagnosis that I mentioned. But technically, Muscle dysmorphia in the DSM-5 is a subtype of body dysmorphic disorder. And one of the, I guess, requirements for body dysmorphic disorder and therefore muscle dysmorphia diagnosis is that um, it can't be better explained by an eating disorder. So in some ways, if you use strict DSM criteria, they're mutually exclusive. You couldn't have muscle dysmorphia as well as an eating disorder. But I think that that's where um, in practice, I've seen a lot of um, clinicians run into issues with like appropriate diagnosis because I think there are a lot of boys and men who have muscularity concerns and who engage in muscle building behaviors. And many of those behaviors 
are related to eating, like, as I mentioned, you might restrict carbs and fats, but you might overconsume proteins, you may be taking nutritional supplements that are meant for muscle building. Um, so I think there's a lot of muscularity oriented disordered eating behaviors. Um, but those currently aren't reflected in any of the DSM-5 eating disorder diagnoses. And then muscle dysmorphia is technically not an eating disorder. Um, so I think that there's still ongoing debate as to you know, what the most appropriate diagnosis is. Um, but I do think that maybe in the future, what could be helpful is if there were new diagnoses that were created that captured more of these muscularity-oriented um, considerations within the eating disorder diagnosis. Um, because I think a lot of the boys and men that we care for now um, end up not meeting the strict criteria for like anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. And so then they go into like unspecified feeding and eating disorder. So just a couple of follow-up questions. I'm, I'm really interested in how uh, people like, how families or, or boys and men find you and like are able to access your help because it's very stigmatized. And so I just wonder, like, what is the path that people are taking to get access to your services? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that eating disorders in general are very stigmatized. And then when you're in sort of an underrepresented population, um, like boys or men, uh, that there can be additional barriers to, to accessing treatment. Um, I will say that probably the most common way that people, um, at least teens, get into our care is that usually teens um, have to, you know, have like an annual checkup or an annual physical with their primary care pediatrician. Um, and sometimes uh, the pediatrician will note like maybe there are some vital sign changes or significant weight changes um, at that checkup. And that will prompt the pediatrician to ask a few more questions. Um, and then some pediatricians actually do ask about different weight um, behavior questions, or like for all their teen patients. And so that could be picked up with um, screening and those assessment tools. So oftentimes I will say that it's actually the primary care pediatrician who notices some sort of um, vital sign change or weight change or some sort of warning sign that then prompts them to do a little bit more investigation and then there's concern for an eating disorder and then they will refer to us. Um, but sometimes I think um, just a boy is struggling and either their parents or themselves will realize that, you know, what their behaviors that they're engaging in, um, you really are um, worsening their quality of life. They're becoming obsessed with food or eating or weight or appearance in a way that's really um, impairing their functioning and worsening their quality of life. And so, um, you know, they may seek help themselves or their parents may seek help as well. But I, I do agree with you that um, in general, my experience is that boys are identified much later than girls. And so sometimes like even that first wrestling um the 16-year-old male wrestler that I had mentioned, I think he had been suffering for you know years before I think he actually was able to get help because I, I do think that we don't often think um, about 
eating disorders in boys and men. So I do think that increased awareness about these these issues, like thank you for doing this podcast and just other awareness campaigns in the media um, have really helped to um, raise awareness about eating disorders in boys and men. But I think there's a long way to still go. Yeah, I agree. I have seen a slight uptick in talk about eating disorders in boys and men. And obviously part of that is because I'm in this space. So I, I get exposed to those conversations. But yes, even like in this conversation, it does sound like there's still work that needs to be done, even like on a research end. Yeah, for sure. It's mm-hmm. still a very early field that can use a lot more research and clinical guidance. All right, great. So to wrap up, um, this is a question that I ask all of my guests this um, season because I really want to emphasize to my audience the importance of self-care. So my question for you is, what is one thing you do each day to maintain mental wellness? Thanks. That's a great question. And I have to say that um, it is really challenging to find time to to take care of yourself, especially with our busy schedules these days. Um, And so for me, uh, I do really like being outdoors. And right now, like I'm working from home, I've been sitting in front of my computer screen all day. Um, So right after this, actually, I'm going to go for a little run. Um, And so I found that, yeah, going outside, walking, running, um, trying to do that at least once a day has been very helpful for my overall mental wellness. So that's one thing that I try to do if I can each day. Great. Yeah, I can attest. I also love the outdoors and just going for a walk even is is really great for my my brain. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed this conversation and I think it'll be helpful for a lot of people. So thank you for taking the time to be here. And thank you so much for having me and for helping to raise awareness about body image issues and eating disorders in boys and men. Today's second guest is William Hornby. William is a mental health advocate, social media influencer, singer, and actor. Starting in 2020, William began utilizing his social media presence to spread awareness about men with eating disorders. Since then, he has begun traveling the world speaking about advocacy, mental health, and eating disorder recovery. He's the recipient of the William Donald Schaefer Helping People Award of 2021, and he sits on the Youth Advisory Board for the Eating Disorder Coalition. He has collaborated with the National Alliance for Eating Disorders and the National Eating Disorders Association. that you're excited (laughs) um of course yeah i 
I think you're gonna provide some great value for my audience, so I'm excited to get into this today. Um, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Absolutely. So uh, I grew up in rural Maryland, um, and I moved to Baltimore City to go to Baltimore School for the Arts High School, where you also attended. Um, and that's how we know each other. Um, and I was a classical voice major there. Um, and then I went to Temple University to pursue a BFA in musical theater. Um, and then I added on a business degree to that because I'm a crazy person. Um, and then I moved to New York. Um, and during that time, I got very into eating disorder recovery advocacy. Um, and I uh, specifically focus on the representation for men with eating disorders because there isn't really any representation for men with eating disorders that is like really meaningful and well-researched. Um, and so I decided to become what I needed. Um, and that has led to being a professional eating disorder recovery advocate uh, where I now work with a lot of the biggest nonprofits that uh, deal with eating disorder recovery. And I also travel around giving my own presentation called The Power of Becoming the Advocate You Needed. Um, and I am very proud of that presentation. I've been giving it a lot. And um, I, I'm really happy with my life right now. I feel like I'm, I'm doing really meaningful work. And that that's something that um, I'm not sure everyone can say, especially at 23. So that's amazing. That's I I love that. Um, I love uh, you know being that person that you needed. That is so powerful, Absolutely. and I think that's like what I'm trying to do too. Is you know making all of this stuff accessible because it wasn't when I was going through the thick of all of my stuff. So. So excited about all of the work that you're doing. Well, and likewise, I think that um, especially when you're in a system like we are in the United States that is uh, a capitalistic nightmare regarding healthcare in particular, um, it's really important to provide access um, and direct people towards accessible mental health care, whether that is you know, traditional mental health care in terms of like actually getting to be in the room with a therapist or a dietitian for an eating disorder, for example. Um, or if that's like finding free groups around you or virtual groups elsewhere, um, whether that's finding like books written by dietitians, there's the intuitive eating workbook. There, there are resources out there that are relatively cheaper um, than actually going to like an intensive outpatient program but obviously like the most important thing obviously is to get people into a professional setting to recover if that is at all a possibility for them uh you don't know what you don't know and i feel like uh, a lot of people especially when you're first entering recovery it's like this is all new information and so putting it out make putting it out there so people are just in the know 
I feel like is so important. Yeah. Absolutely. Democratizing access to information is so important. For sure. For sure. All right. So let's get into the topic today. Um, to start, I guess, yeah, let's talk about your eating disorder. So when did you first realize or when were you first diagnosed with an eating disorder and how did the diagnosis make you feel? Or if, you know, you came to the realization before being diagnosed, how did that realization make you feel? Yeah, for sure. So, um, I probably developed an eating disorder around the time I was 11 years old. Um, that was due to a combination of factors. Uh, one of them was I grew up in a very, very diet culture household where um, thinness was definitely like a huge priority and dieting was a very regular part of life. Um, and that obviously is a huge setup for developing an eating disorder. Um, the number one predictor of developing an eating disorder is a history of dieting. Um, so having come from a diet-filled household, that is really one of the things that, that you know, uh, kicked things off. Um, and then on top of that, I pursued uh, pre-professionally education in musical theater. Um, and I did a lot of musical theater and a lot of the expectations that are placed in your body when you are in the performing arts, um, specifically ones that relate to dance, as you know, um, really, uh, they're very harmful. Um, and they, those expectations um, force you to consider um, your nutrition and the way that you move your body in ways that you're like, they, they, they're almost purely aesthetic um, because you're like, the way I look is part of what is getting me hired and that is my livelihood. Um, and so that's a really, really rough thing to deal with, especially when like leaders in the industry are telling you like, your body needs to look like this or you'll never get hired. So <clears throat> that was that was definitely a thing that, that um, drove my eating disorder, worsened it. And then another thing is that I'm a gay man and there are really, really, um, <clears throat> there are really strict bodily expectations placed on um, gay men in society. And that is not necessarily a entire LGBTQ plus community thing. Arguably the part of the gay community that um, is driving that problem, the no fats, no femmes, no Asians kind of brand of gay man uh, that we all know and love so fondly. That is a, a subset of the population. Um, and it's not one that, um, that I think that anyone should really associate with if they want to have a semblance of good mental health. <laughs> um, um, but my eating disorder went undiagnosed for about 10 years. Um, it was relatively obvious um, in later high school, probably. And if I were a woman, specifically like a skinny white woman going through what I was going through, it probably would have been picked up on and someone would have called attention to it in a way that would have 
led to some kind of treatment, but because I was a guy, um, there was really no like recognition of what I was going through. Um, and so it wasn't until I went vegetarian, quote unquote, for the environment, um, my sophomore year of college that I went to a dietitian and was, I was like, hey, I think I'm eating vegetarian wrong. And she was like, oh, I think you're doing a lot of things wrong. I'm going to send you to a therapist who can diagnose you with what I think is going on. And then I can work with you. Um, and so I went to a therapist. I got diagnosed with OSFED, which is other specified feeding or eating disorders, which I took as, oh, so I don't have a real eating disorder. So then I continued to not focus on it for a while until the like binge restrict cycle that I was experiencing and the emotions around food that I was experiencing were just so like quality of life ruining that I really needed to pursue serious recovery. And so um, I ended up studying abroad in Rome in spring of 2020, um, which was a great time to do that because that's when the world shut down. So <laughs> I got sent home uh, and I was doing a bit better with eating while I was in Europe. But as soon as I came home, uh, everything came crashing down. And I really, really started to focus on recovery with my dietitian and my therapist. And one of the hardest things about pursuing that, that summer of 2020, was that I was really looking for any kind of representation for men with eating disorders because I felt very alone. And I, while I knew men who had had eating disorders, I knew men who were in recovery from eating disorders, I only knew that based on behavior I'd seen them like exhibit. And I knew it based on people telling me like in confidence, like so-and-so is in recovery from an eating disorder. So it wasn't like something that I could come out and say like, hey, I think you've struggled with this. Like, can we talk about it? Um, and so I felt very alone. I asked my therapist and my dietitian, I was like, can you find me any resources or any support groups for like men with eating disorders? And they came up short and I, I was like, wow. So it's just really just like not out there. Um, but nevertheless, <laughs> um, I persisted in recovery and I, um, I'm very fortunate to have access to the healthcare that allowed for me to be supported through my recovery, because if I hadn't had those resources, I'm sure that that loneliness would have caused a relapse or caused me to just give up on the entire initiative. Um, but uh, I was fortunate enough to get to a much more solid place in recovery. And then um, in October 2020, I started carving pumpkins. Um, on TikTok, and I went viral doing so because I'm very, very good at carving pumpkins. And um, I got to the end of October, and my hand felt arthritic, and I'd carved 18 pumpkins, and I was just, I was so exhausted. And I was like, and I'm never doing that again. And um, pretty quickly, I was like, but I have 13,000 followers on TikTok. That's so many people what if I make that platform something that is like good for people? So I started doing men's eating disorder recovery advocacy. And um, a fun thing that they tell you uh, is 
that you, you're like, yeah, right. That's not true. It's like when you start to do something that no one else is doing, especially if that there's like a vacuum um, of need for that thing, it blows up really fast. And so very quickly within a month of doing it, I had way more followers than I had before. And um, I was getting like interview requests and podcast requests. And I was like, I really need to make sure I know what I'm talking about. So I became friends with a lot of dietitians. I became friends with a lot of therapists. I started reading a lot of fat liberation work. I started reading a lot of eating disorder recovery work and Hayes work. And um, that led me to uh, the place where I am now, um, where I would say I'm a very informed professional advocate who handles things very sensitively. That's so, so great. And it sounds like you kind of fell into getting treatment like by accident. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering like, uh, what was the experience of like, getting that like first initial education like were you even aware that what you were dealing with was an eating disorder um and like what what supports did your dietitian and therapist give you like were you admitted to any uh groups or treatment programs what was that like so um i did kind of just fall into it um it was uh, I was aware that I had trouble with eating, but I wasn't, I wasn't convinced that it was an eating disorder. The thing that they tell you in like middle school health classes is like, there's anorexia nervosa and there's bulimia nervosa. And like, maybe they touch on binge eating disorder, but like, there is no even kind of acknowledgement that like OSFED is even a thing. And that like, essentially the only real criteria for having an eating problem worth addressing, um, also known as an eating disorder, is that like you have a weird relationship with food and then also there's an emotional component to it. You know, like there, there are some people who I would say eat in a disordered way and those people are like people who are on diets all the time, but like if they go off of their diet or like if their diet gets messed up, like it does not matter to them. Like it's not like something that affects them in any kind of emotional way. Um, whereas if your diet has an emotional component, unfortunately, that might not just be a diet. <laughs> that might um, that might be an eating disorder. That's something you should go to see a dietitian and a therapist to just get checked out if you think that like there is an emotional component to your diet because that is not good for your mental health. Um, and so... Um, I uh, I didn't know anything about intuitive eating. I didn't know that the binge and restrict cycle that I was experiencing was like technically an eating disorder or worth treating. Um, and that that is really what um, I think I had to learn is really that that self validation of like I'm going through something real, you know, um, and. Once I got that education, um, I was uh, really once once I got that education, and also I was like 
prepared to take what I was going through seriously. Um, it was like April, 2020. Like there were not any treatment centers taking like patients that uh, like, it seemed like I should be partaking in, you know? Um, so really I was living alone during the, the like initial lockdown. Um, and I, uh, worked with my dietitian on recovery record, which is an app. Um, and I would log my meals. Um, and what we would, we would do is essentially we were trying to get it so that my body was used to being fed consistently throughout the day. And then once that had happened, um, then we, we started to work on intuitive eating. Um, and so a very, a very like structured approach to like essentially at home outpatient recovery. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And uh, yeah, that's just so uh, frustrating that it landed right at that time. Right. Yeah. When lockdown happened. But also um, I don't think it would have gotten help if that hadn't happened because everything slowed down yeah. and I was always like I don't have time to take care of my mental health I have to go audition for things like I I was constantly on the run doing xyz and like I I just I truly didn't have the time to focus on my mental health and so when everything slowed down and nothing was happening I was like okay I guess I guess I do this now yeah yeah <laughs> And I think that was the blessing in COVID was that it forced us to pause. It forced everyone to pause and made us take a look at ourselves. Um, yeah, and it's so hard to, to look at such a traumatic and terrible period of time and like be like, wow, my life really got better as a result of that. You know, it's, it's really, it's a, a cognitive dissonance that we have dissonance that we have to really um like level with constantly for sure so you started on tiktok with your pumpkin carving videos and shifted to uh, more uh like men's eating disorder education and so you said that grew pretty fast uh, knowing the internet, um, what was it like getting so much feedback from those videos you were making? And like, did you have to deal with any like negative feedback? And, and what was that like? Oh, absolutely. Uh, here's the thing about men's eating disorders is they are built into kind of our modern day expectations of what masculinity looks like. A lot of men are expected to be on diets. A lot of men are expected to be um, like working on their physique at all times. And that is an expectation that um, I would say many men attribute to like the female gaze, but like that is absolutely not true. It's, it's, in a, it's a function of the patriarchy. It is um, rules of masculinity set for men oppressing men uh, in, in these systems that men have built, you know, um, which is why it is 
mean, with all systems of oppression, there's absolutely um, incentive for the oppressor to dismantle the system because the oppressor um, is also oppressed by the system because if, uh, if anyone is oppressed, then all people are not liberated, you know? Um, and so that is, that is a huge part of the equation for men's eating disorders. Um, but another thing is that we teach men um, to, you know, defend their masculinity at all costs. And because a lot of those disordered eating habits are built into our, like, expectations of what a man does, yeah. men will violently defend these things that they're doing. Um, a lot of men have what uh, is considered... Um, an eating disorder by most dietitians and by most eating disorder organizations. It's not technically in the DSM-5. Maybe it'll be in the DSM-6, but it is the diagnosis um, or the potential diagnosis for orthorexia nervosa, which is a an obsession with clean eating and like and that that's obviously in quotation marks like clean yeah. eating slash like um, you know eating to to fuel yourself and that's it and like only getting the exact amount of uh macro (laughs) nutrients that you need and it's like it's like a a really i don't think we as a a human race are like meant to know as much about nutrition as like we do and also when it comes to nutrition we are like in the dark ages of like understanding it. We actually know very, very little about like what the body actually needs. Um, but uh, people really get obsessed with um, with performing health. Um, and that is a huge part of uh, masculinity. And so because people, uh, men are so um, protective of their masculinity, because masculinity is so fragile, um, that has resulted in me getting tremendous amounts of hatred on the internet. Um, like I, I, I've gone viral um, actually uh, in in uh, on the, you know what's colloquially called the wrong side of TikTok. Um, I made a video one time saying that like actively not wanting to be fat is fat phobic, which is simply true, um, yeah. and it's it's important thing to to know when you're in eating disorder recovery and mm-hmm. it's important that you know as an eating disorder recovery advocate that you're encouraging people to unlearn their anti-fatness that we're all raised with and we're all told is right and virtuous um just like all people have to unlearn anti-blackness just like how all people have to unlearn misogyny like yeah. there are people with internalized um, these things, and those are the people who are those things and uh, use them against themselves, and then um, there are people who just are those things, um, and like, if you are anti-black, if you're anti-fat, if you're misogynistic, like, th- those are things you have to work on. Those are things that you have to recognize in yourself, and not be ashamed of, but like, recognize that like, you were taught this from a young age, and this is something you have to unpack and unlearn. Um, and <laughs> TikTok is where nuance goes to die. Um, and so, um, that, uh, that five second clip of 
me saying it is fat phobic to uh, to not want to be fat, to actually not want to be fat, um, went viral on like Jim Bro TikTok, and oh. I was getting death threats. I was getting um, like I, we're talking millions and millions and millions of views on stitches of that video. It was so horrifying. It was it was genuinely a terrible time in my life. Um, and it it lasted for months also. Um, and it, it was it was it was very traumatizing. Um, and I developed a tougher skin because of it. And I, like I, I don't know that that is like a, a positive thing necessarily. Like I would never yeah. like go so far as to say like and like your trauma was actually a good thing because now next time it happens, you'll be desensitized to it. Like that's, <laughs> I would, I would not argue that that's like necessarily a good thing, but like, it's definitely something that um, has like, it's like a skill now that has like helped me um, deal with any other like tremendous backlash from people who are outrage harming. Um, yeah. But uh, it's, it's definitely been a journey. I know that I've helped a lot of men with eating disorders. Um, yeah. But I also know I'm hated by a lot of men with eating disorders who aren't <laughs> in recovery. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then also I everyone, everyone takes anything they see and they apply it to themselves. And so like, there are probably people who hate me who, um, you know, they do just eat in a disordered way and feel very passionate about it. But also, like, mm. if you're so passionate about your disordered eating that, like, you're hurling death threats to someone, is that, like, is that a good relationship with your diet? <laughs> right. You know? Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, if you're defending the way you eat and the way you exercise that passionately, like, are you sure that that's a good relationship? Yeah. Positive? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I imagine it's, it's just an interesting experience because that, like, the world is still so enthralled in diet culture, and people mm-hmm. don't even realize it. Um, and so, yeah. It, yeah, I can just imagine there's a lot of, like, people not wanting to hear the messages that you're, you're giving. And people intentionally mishearing it or not like watching the whole, like people didn't even watch the whole video. I remember there was Mm. a comment on one of the, on one of this, on that post actually, where they like, whatever the comment was, I literally addressed like that issue in the video. Like that was a question I had like person A asking in the video. And I was like, did you even watch the video? And the the guy replied to me now I came here from the stitch. And like, I was like, wow, that was the moment that I realized I need to step away and and back off of this because Mm. people are judging me based on other people's warping of what I said. Yeah. Not at all based on what I actually said because people aren't even watching what I put out there. They're just coming from other videos to like roll death threats or thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you've you've decided to kind of step back from posting as much. 
I mean, it's it's not so much that. I mean, I, I've definitely, I've taken breaks. Like I took a, yeah. a four month break actually over the summer and that was a wonderful choice for my mental health. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of fortunate in that I've built a platform talking about this thing that I also talk about in person and talk about, you know, in hired speeches. And I think that's really where I've transitioned my career into is like more uh, tangible advocacy um, and, and uh, you know, like working with nonprofits, helping to make content for these nonprofits that deal with eating disorders. Um, and really like that has become my career. I really, I, I felt more like I was an influencer earlier on in this. And now I feel like I am a professional advocate with a social media presence. Um, and that has been a, a really great transition for me. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, it's so cool to see it, that how it's transformed into that. So my next question for you is, uh, what like what is recovery for you like now? Um, what what are the things that you do to make sure that you're staying on track? For sure. So. Um, I actually just started seeing a new dietitian. My old dietitian was with my university. Um, and then she went on maternity leave. And then I graduated. So um, I hadn't been seeing a dietitian for about um, six months. And um, I've really been working um, specifically on my body image with my therapist lately. And like on specifically, like I've body dysmorphia um and it's been a like very deliberate push like that is like the one thing in my life that I'm like that I really need to continue to work on um regarding my eating disorder I'm actually very very recovered um and like when I have thoughts that are disordered regarding eating I'm able to not act on them which is really great um but um now it's just a matter of really like like finding a good balance in my life of, you know, like how can I get like more food groups in consistently than I generally do, you know, like really just like trying to make my like everyday food intake a little bit more nutritionally dense without like veering into any kind of orthorexic territory, um, which I have done before. Um, and so it's it's just like really finding like how can I be eating everything I want, you know, um, and like feel like satiated afterwards and not like overstuffed and not underfed, you know. Um, but like really, I'm I'm doing very well actually. When I did my intake with this dietitian, she was like, "It's it's very." Um, it's going to be very fun to work with you because she was like, I never like get people in intakes who are like as recovered as you are, you know, like what you're looking for is like some like just light nutrition guidance versus like, I'm usually working with people who like need to know like the very basics of how to be an eating disorder recovery, you know? So it's, it's like, I think that that is a testament to like where I am in my recovery um, and I feel very good about that. But also, like, I understand people with eating disorders very, very well. And I think that that really um, 
helps me make the kind of content that I do um, because I, I understand those irrational thoughts um, inside out and I understand that they are irrational. And I know really how to like, I know how I talk myself down from them. And so a lot of the times my videos are set up as like, here is an irrational thought. And then here is the process of talking yourself down from that irrational thought. Yeah, I oh, I love that you do it that way because that's that's such a good practice to get into that reframing. And I feel like yeah. that's what a lot of your videos are is reframing for the viewer, which is so great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I, I work really, really hard to like have that be the the direction that they all go in. And mm -hmm. it's it's really exciting when it, when I get comments that are like, wow, this totally shifted my perspective on this. Like, yes. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. All right. Um my last question, so this is a question that I'm asking all of my guests this season because um, as I was telling you before, the beginning of this year, I had to go back into eating disorder treatment and I really had to take a look at self-care uh, because I wasn't doing it yeah. um, anymore. And so yeah. I want to ask all of my guests this question because self-care is so, so important. Um, so the question is, what is one thing that you do every day to maintain mental wellness? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a few things. Okay, that's yeah, that's fine. Really, really improved my, my mental health, right? Um, for one thing, um, I was really scared to get on medication. Um, but like taking meds that work is so great. It's a game changer. <laughs> um, it is a game changer. It's such a game changer. Um, <laughs> I was on meds that were not working for most of this year. Um, and I recently got on meds that work. And ooh, what a difference. It is yeah. so, so good to be on medication that works. Um, and so like that is that take your meds um, is one of my my pieces of advice. If you're fortunate enough to have medication that works for you that you like found with a psychiatrist, ideally, um, then that is that is great. Um, I also I go to therapy and I'm honest with my therapist. I go to my dietitian appointments. I'm honest with my dietitian. Being honest with your mental health professionals is really really important because they can't do their job if you aren't telling them what's going on. Um, and I know that a lot of people combat that with like, I don't wanna go on a grippy socks vacation if I'm too honest with my mental health professional, but I'm like, while mental health incarceration is like absolutely a, a real thing, if you are concerned about like that system, like incarcerating you essentially, um, that is something you should talk about with your therapist. Like, these are the, like, guardrails we should put up around these conversations of, like, if I'm a danger to myself, how can I express that to you in a way that does not end up putting me in more danger, you know? So, like, that, that's, like, and if you don't feel comfortable having that conversation with your therapist, you might need a new therapist that you do feel comfortable with. Because, ultimately, your mental health professionals should not be, like, looking to lock you up. Um, so, that, that is a really important tip being honest with your mental health professionals so they know what's actually going on. Um, in terms of like tangible little things that I do in my everyday life, 
Um, one is that I work on social media and that is very mentally taxing. Um, and so I have two phones. I have a phone for social media that I keep in my office and that's what I film things on. That's where I view social media. I have a futon behind me in my office with a blanket and a pillow. And that's where I sit and scroll through TikTok. I am not allowed to bring that phone outside of my office. It does not enter my bedroom. It does not enter my living space. That phone is meant for work. Um, and then my other phone has like, my very private Twitter on it that I just retweet things on. And then that's the only social media on it. And everything else is like my hiking app and my like my text messages and um, my photos and Pokemon Go and the things that bring me joy. Um, and um, then also I recently got a Kindle um, and I, I've read like 30 books in the, since April. Like I've been reading away. It has been wonderful. Um, and I, I think for a long time, I, I was like really, really addicted to TikTok, um, like scrolling through short form content constantly. Um, and I think that really like finding longer forms of content to enjoy is such a blessing. Um, because it's it's so much rewarding, and I think it's it sticks with you longer um, than like you know if you're consuming like a hundred, two hundred, three hundred videos a day versus like sitting down with a book or watching a movie or like even watching like I one of the best things for my mental health right now is there's a new Abbott Elementary episode every Wednesday night. And I sit down with my boyfriend and we watch it together over the phone. Um, and it's wonderful. Like just knowing, like knowing what you can resort to, like what long form content you can resort to, I think is, is wonderful. It might be a long podcast you listen to. It might be a video game you love playing. Um, like, whatever it is, like there are things other than scrolling through TikTok and Instagram. And like, while that is like a totally acceptable way to spend your time and like, you should not feel any kind of like moral obligation to not spend however long scrolling through TikTok or Instagram, I would recommend diversifying what you consume. Um, because I think that there's so much great long form art out there and like I said, it sticks with you longer afterwards. I think the impact of long form art is often greater. Great, yeah, the, that's amazing advice. Um, well, that's four I, things. <laughs> I know, I was about to say, like you gave us four things that we can take home with us. That is amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. Before we close out, uh, can you tell us some ways that my audience and I can stay up to date with you and the work that you're doing? Absolutely. You can find me at William Hornby on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, my email is williamdavidhornby at gmail.com. If you have any questions or if you have any interest in having me come to your university um, or your school or your business, um, I give a presentation, like I said, called The Power of Becoming the Advocate You Needed, and I am available for booking. Um, I also uh, can be found at williamhornby.com. Great. 
Great. Thank you so, so much for being here today, William. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Of course. I know this is going to help so many people. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. I want to give a big thank you to Jason and William for being on the show. I think this is an extremely important subject that's not talked about nearly enough. So I really encourage you all to go to the description of the episode where you'll find our guests' information. And there you can learn more about them and all the work that they're doing. If you have a moment, please leave a rating and review for this podcast. These ratings and reviews allow me to know how you've been liking the show and also allows these episodes to reach more ears. You can leave a review by scrolling to the bottom of the episode page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or by using an app like Podchaser. Thank you so much again for listening. I hope you learned something new or resonated with something you heard today, and I will see you next episode. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.